This morning's scripture reading is found in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. You can find this on page 839 if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided in the chair pockets, or at the end or middle of the side aisles. Again, Ephesians 6, verse 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleases, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how the gospel transforms the way we work as employees and the way we supervise and serve those under us as bosses. So employees one week, bosses the next. And Paul is telling us here that the gospel frees us to, to work and serve in, in ways that helps us leave a distinct mark on our workplaces. But underneath these principles, we first need to address the elephant in the room, namely that Paul doesn't use the terms Uh, employees and bosses, rather slaves and masters. And and I want to, we have to deal with this first because it's, it's honestly passages like this that cause many people, maybe even some of you, to, to dismiss the Bible altogether as either irrelevant because it's old and stuck in its ways and it says things like this. So forget the Bible or forget the Bible because worse, it's, it's cruel, uh, it's insensitive, it's, it's harmful in its rhetoric to others. So to put it bluntly, we need to address the question of why does Paul even address slaves and masters at all? Why doesn't he outright condemn the practice of slavery altogether as he has opportunity to do so? Just like evangelicals, evangelical Christians in later generations would do in places like America and Great Britain. Evangelicals who are at the forefront of voicing their opinion and their beliefs on the abolition of slavery. Why doesn't Paul do that here? And so I just want to talk about this this morning. We have to do a little bit of work till we get to the good stuff of applying this passage to our lives. I think there's two big reasons why Paul doesn't just say slavery is wrong and come right out and say it. Number one, slavery in the first century Rome was qualitatively different than African slave trades in our history. All right, first of all, slavery in in Paul's time wasn't race-based. There were races and nations all over the Mediterranean represented here. Uh, most slaves are from nations that were conquered by Rome. That's just the way it worked. If, if you were conquered, you became a slave. Or they voluntarily, a lot of slaves voluntarily gave themselves up for, for slavery in order to pay off debt in their lives. So they, so they offer themselves to be bond servants or slaves. The other thing different about slavery is the slave had, slaves had rights. For an example, as needed, a slave could take his master to court if necessary. Also, you'd have to be, you'd almost be certain to be emancipated during your lifetime. And even some slaves would earn modest wages, right? So it's a, it's a lot more nuanced than, than the slavery we think about with the African slave trade. There, there's, there's some nuance to it. It's not just totally bad. And that's not to say that it was good, nor does Paul condone it or seem okay with it. In fact, elsewhere, Paul personally writes to a brother in Christ, encourage him to welcome back 
a runaway slave and welcome him back and free him as a brother in Christ. They say, let him go. Let him be free. He's now your brother in Christ. He says that in Philemon. There's a whole book, a whole letter Paul writes about it in the New Testament. But Paul's primary concern is with how the gospel transforms people in whatever condition they find themselves. Like wherever you're at in life, the gospel would transform you there. And that was important because the average lifespan of a person in those days, for for a woman, it was just under 30. For for a man, just under 40. Nearly one-third of the population was slaves. That means life is short and there were a lot of slaves. So Paul's concern is that the good news about Jesus flavor as many lives as possible to not only save people and change people, but make their working relationships distinct from the way that the world conducted working relationships. Does that make sense? It was more urgency. And frankly, if the gospel and the good news about Jesus didn't change people from the inside out first, if they didn't experience true freedom, however were they going to taste political or social freedom? They need to experience freedom of the soul before we talk about political and social freedom. So Paul's concern is squarely on that. And here's the good little extra news, a little extra tidbit. We know that the gospel, Christians, over time, because of the way they related with one another, slavery died out in the ancient Roman world, largely because of Christians, primarily because of Christians. So the good news for us this morning as we read this passage is that because this institution was so different in those days, so nuanced, there are more similarities to an employer-employee relationship. And so we can benefit from some of the, at least some of the principles that Paul lays out here. Now, of course, for many of you, you didn't need that little nuanced, qualifying introduction at all. In fact, when an accountant friend asked me this week what I was preaching on, I explained work, but I also said, hey, man, I got to do it from this passage about slaves and masters. And his busy season reply was, yeah, that makes sense, right? Like, I get it. (laughs) I mean, how many of you feel that right now? I mean, judged by the laughter, you knew what I was talking about. Weary, overworked, you bear the heavy weight of not only the hours you work, but the pressures put upon you by those for whom you work, those who employ you. And God has something to say to you today through his word. In fact, three things this morning. Number one, to work respectfully because Jesus receives your service. Number two, work consistently because Jesus sees your service. And number three, work with a good attitude because Jesus repays your service. So number one, first, work respectfully because Jesus receives your service. One of the hardest things to do for any lengthy period of time is to work under someone you don't respect. All of us know that feeling, I think. I'm grateful that it only happened to me one time and for a very brief period of time. Um, He was a well, this guy, he was well-meaning in so many ways. He just had a hard time listening. And he also told, well, way too many bathroom jokes. I mean, especially for his age. There were just way too, just way too, I'm not going to tell one. I promised myself I wouldn't, but it was, it was just, come on, really? Too much. Some of you continue. You still work under a boss or a supervisor who, who doesn't appear to listen, right? Doesn't seem to value you. Perhaps they're quick, quick to criticize or, or quick to be super sensitive to criticism. Maybe they're irritated easily, prone to anchor, quick-tempered. And the Bible has a word for these kinds of people, 
and that word is fool. The Old Testament book of Proverbs describes a fool in the following ways. Wasteful, ill-tempered, self-centered, using words without restraint. They lack self-control. On the whole, they're just someone who doesn't really fear God. In their eyes, they are big and God is small. They make much of themselves. And maybe maybe you work directly under someone like that and and you're asking yourself, "Can, can can I serve a fool? And the answer from Scripture is yes. Only if you first recognize that Jesus served an enemy. Only if you can recognize that Jesus served an enemy. Elsewhere, Paul says this in Romans 5, 7 to 8. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone may possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that means Jesus' ultimate service, his work on our behalf, was not for someone whom he could respect. His service to us wasn't for someone he could respect. Look what Paul says here. For a good man, someone might die, right? For a noble cause, for a noble person, for a good, respectful person, someone might lay down their lives in the greatest of movies, the most heroic of acts. Who dies for an enemy, for a sinner? That's what the contrast is, right? But God's love is different. He demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were still his enemies, he goes on later to say in Romans 5, to die for us. That means every time you decided to go your own way instead of God's, any time you attempted to justify yourself before God, making much of yourself, you and I, we, we, we set ourselves against God. We say, God, I want to do this my way, and that's what the Bible calls sin. And it makes us enemies. Make no bones about it. That work that Jesus did on the cross for you, that was a work he did for an enemy. That was a work he did for someone who wasn't deserving, not just that, but ill-deserving of grace. What does that do to you? What, what should that do to us? It should, it should help us fear God well, fear Jesus well. Look again at verse 5. It says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would, Christ. Now, when we think of fear and trembling, primarily think of, of, of awful consequences and, and terrible things that might happen to us. But the Bible, when it talks about fearing God, it means a, a reverential awe. It means to be in awe of God. It means that we see God rightly and ourselves rightly. That we see ourselves rightly as small and God as big. And we're just in awe of his, of his great goodness and his great sovereignty and his power. First time I got a good understanding of that was when I read Psalm 130. I didn't know. I, I heard this, but how do I actually get to the point where I'm in awe of God? And I read this wonderful verse in Psalm 130. Maybe you've read it before as well, but it, it changed my understanding of fearing God. It's in Psalm 130, verse 4. But with you, God, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Hear that again. How often do you hear those terms together? Forgiveness and fear. But here they are. Because these verses foreshadowed Jesus. Jesus fulfilled this verse. Jesus alone could forgive an enemy. Therefore, he is feared. Right? He's respected. He's revered. All of a sudden, Jesus is big. He's the only one who can forgive my sin. And I am small. 
that does something for me in the way that I work. Jesus is the only way to work respectfully for someone you don't respect. You can serve a fool because Jesus served an enemy. You and me. And here's the miracle. It doesn't have to be fake or insincere. You don't have to pretend it because the reality is, here's the miracle, that it's Jesus, your true master that you are serving. That's what Paul says here. In fact, this verse literally reads, Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as Christ. You you, you read in the translation, as you would Christ, but it literally means as Christ. In other words, obey as Christ. Christ. It's as if Jesus is saying, whatever you do unto the least among your bosses, you do to me. Right? Work respectfully because Jesus receives your service. It's him who you're serving. Number two, work consistently because Jesus sees your service. What I love about Paul is he just gets it. He understands the human heart and in a way that that sometimes I don't even realize until I read what he has to say. And, and, and he gives us this word in, in verse 6 that makes immediate sense. He makes up a word, a word that really had never been used before in Greek. And it makes immediate sense to us. It's called eye service. And any of you guys who've worked for someone, you've worked in an institution before, you know what I mean by this word. Paul is saying don't work in such a way that we are serving somebody else's eyes. That, that we're trying to look good in front of them. And what's interesting is work like this can go one of two ways. Just getting enough done, right, to satisfy your bosses, satisfy another person so they approve, or going above and beyond so that somebody else approves, right? It can go either way in your service, either just enough or above and beyond. But either way, that kind of service, it will crush you absolutely crush you. Yet nearly every worker I've ever known, every hard worker ever, every person who, who drives themselves in their work does so ultimately because in an honest moment, they're trying to impress or please someone else ultimately. I, I remember the story of, of a man named Andrew Carnegie who was known as the King of Steel back in the day. His mother, Andrew Carnegie, um, immigrated from uh, Dunfermline, Scotland, um, brought Andrew over to this country, He rose from poverty, made himself something out of of nothing. And he seemed his whole life not to even care about pleasing anyone. He just did his thing. He was known for it. He used to call business. He used to compare it to a game of solitaire. His favorite line was, thine own reproach alone do I fear. In other words, his, his own opinion alone does he fear in life. That's it. That was like his motto in life right there on his desk. And yet the greatest day of Carnegie's life was the return to his mother's hometown of Dunfermline. Why was that? Well, when he was a kid, he told his mom when they were in abject poverty, he told his mom, one day we're going to be rich. We're going to be rich and we're going to ride on a coach. And his mom said this to him. She said, that won't do any good unless the people of Dunfermline see us. And as a child, he remembered that. It was etched in his mind. And so one day, he finally arrived in Dunfermline on that coach with his mom, tears in her eyes. He had dedicated a, a library to, the, to this city. Why was he there? For, the, for their applause, right? Finally, his work, every, his, his life's total, everything he worked so hard for would be applauded and approved by someone else. 
There's something baked into us that ultimately wants to, to work, to perform, if you will, for an audience, even if it's just an audience of one. And that's who Paul says to make your audience. Everyone lives to please someone. Paul says, live for this audience of one. Live to please the Lord and not man, he says here. Early on when I was a Christian, someone handed me a book called The Fight uh, by a Christian psychologist named John White. In the book, uh, White shares this, this helpful moment in his life that really grabbed my attention. He shares how he was studying to be a psychiatrist. And along the way, um, he, he felt all this pressure so much pressure to get good grades, to get sort of the next step, the next level uh, of his degree. And he felt so much pressure to perform, he plunged in this constant cycle of procrastination and cramming, procrastination and cramming. He put things off because of the pressure. And then he, then he worked super hard because of the pressure. And it was killing him. And then he, he read this passage in Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, 5 to 9, and he asked the question, like, what if I stopped studying for the grades, studying for the marks, and really just did it for the Lord? What if I aimed to please him with my work instead of trying to get the approval of other people by them giving me an A? He says this totally transforms the way he studied. Right? He took rest. He actually enjoyed what he was studying. He worked more consistently. And he did better work in the end. Not because he was trying to do better work or trying to do better grades, but because he, he wanted to please an audience of one. And just enjoy that time along the way. That experience, guys, really, really helped. It, it helped me. It helped me because in, in my work, I feel that pressure. And yet when I, when I try to just do it for God, like this week with this passage on my heart, this passage on my mind, trying to please God, I, I, I could sense it in the way I'm, for example, prepared a teaching for Bible 102 and prepared for this morning that if I'm just focusing on pleasing God, it helps me do better work, right? Why? Because the pressure's off. Jesus alone has accepted us forever because of what he did on the cross. So the pressure's off to perform for him. We can just do it for him as an act of service, as a response of sacrifice to praise to Jesus for what he's done for all, us. And the glorious result is that Jesus always sees. Isn't that wonderful? We don't have to do eye service to others. Jesus' eye is always on us. He always sees you going the extra mile. He always sees that, that kind and thoughtful follow-up by phone call or by note to a client. He sees the way that you, without, without asking for applause or even trying to get attention, you, you went behind you, but your boss and, and cleaned up an, an error that they may have made. Right? Didn't, didn't ask for fanfare. He, he sees... The great idea that you had, that someone else took credit for, like he, he sees that. His eye is always on your service, is always on your work. And friends, he is well pleased when you serve him. That's wonderful, right? Work consistently because Jesus always sees your service. And number three, work with a good attitude because Jesus repays your service. Look at, look at verse seven again with me. As you... Do goodwill from the heart, rendering service, sorry, render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. That, that, that phrase there, goodwill, could also be translated as good attitude. Like, what's normal for attitude in your workplace? 
What's just kind of like status quo? You're sitting around, you're talking to some coworkers at a break in work, you're doing a project in the break room right after work. What's, the, what's normal conversation? My guess is normal, particularly this time of year, is complaining. And, and as you give voice to your complaints, you do so normally to coworkers, right? People who are important in your life. And this is normal, but friends, you are distinct. You are not normal. Remember again the whole context of Ephesians 5 and 6. The gospel of grace, the love of Jesus has made us distinct. You are new creations. You are light in the Lord. You have the Holy Spirit living in you who can continually fill you, and that makes our relationships and our conversations different. All kinds of different relationships, right? That's what we've been looking at. Our marriage relationships, the relationships in our home, and here, the relationships in our workplace. So to talk like every other employee might make you seem more relatable in the short term, but it makes you seem far less distinct in the long term. And that's a temptation for me. Like, yeah, I'm going to join in. I don't want to be that Christian who never complains, who here's on the side. I'm going to join in this fest. But you're distinct. You're light in the Lord. You're not like everyone else. We want our relationships in the workplace to be flavored with the good news about Jesus, right? The only way to do that is to work with a good attitude. This doesn't mean that God wants you to sort of just suppress all your frustrations and your anger at work to like just not have any emotions at all and like just bottle it up. We read earlier in Ephesians how to deal with our anger, right? If you turn over a page, Ephesians 4, 16 through 27, it's on the screen as well. Be angry, Paul says. He says he's giving you permission. Be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. We learn that anger is a right judgment, that that matters and it's wrong. But there's an expiration date on the anger. We're meant to to do something with that anger. We are meant to go to God and vent that anger to him. And it's wonderful. If you read the Psalms, you'll read them and be, man, these people are angry. I read the Old Testament Psalms, all these prayers of God's people, and they're angry people. Have you ever noticed that? Because they're real prayers. It's people saying, God, I'm angry at these other people. They are my enemies. I wish ill upon them. They can say that to God. It's much healthier than saying that to other people. And then if you still have some frustration, if there's still conflict, well, then then you go to that person and you humbly express your issues. You humbly express maybe how you're slightly frustrated. I should say, in rare cases, when your anger is caused by criminal behavior, we have another resource, your HR department and the police. Right? If someone asks you to come, your anger because they ask you to do something unethical, your boss asks you that, you don't just have to go to God. You don't have to go to the other person. You can go to the police. God gives us all of these ways in his economy, gives us all these ways to redirect our frustration in a way that both softens your heart and helps us live distinctly from the rest of the world. Helps the world see, oh, there's something different about this person. And he gives us a wonderful promise, too, in verse 8 about working with a great attitude. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. This good he will receive back from the Lord. That's wonderful, right? Any good that you do. Now, that, even that phrase can be a problem for us. I think one of the most common problems I find on this island is that many of us have, have lost faith that our work is good, that our work is even good. Many of us wonder if our work is making an actual contribution to society. 
other than making rich people richer. Uh, in an honest moment, many of you guys have expressed that. You question if God has any good purpose for you in the work itself. Yes, you know you're going to be praying for your people at your workplace, and yes, you want to share the good news about Jesus with them, and those things are important and good. But what about the work itself? Is it even noble and good? And the good news is your work is absolutely good. It has a good purpose in God's creation because God says so. We have to backtrack a little bit about this, but in our creation story, as, as, as people who trust in Jesus, our cre- uh, the story of our creation, God gets his hands dirty from the start in creating man. And then he tells man to get his hands dirty in the garden that God created. So he calls men and women to be, to be gardeners, to work it and to keep it in Genesis 2, 15. And then immediately afterwards, there's a second kind of work God calls man to do. It, it's to give order to creation by naming all the animals so that you can identify different species Right? Which would be really helpful, and it's proven very helpful in our life experience. So we have here, and it's wonderful, our creation story. It helps us understand God's purpose for us in so many ways, Genesis 1 and 2. And one of those ways is help us understand God's purpose in our work, that it has purpose. All of us, in some ways, are gardeners or namers in life. Gardeners are those who take the stuff of creation and make it into something new. The, the resources God has given us makes it something new. You're a, a chef, an artist, a stylist, a legislator who produces laws. You produce wealth and use it for good. If you're a chemist and you take the, the raw materials of this world and you make it into something good and helpful for humanity, this is all part of God's good purpose for your work. Or you're, you might be a namer. Namers help us make sense of creation. Parents who are our first instructors Right? Teachers who, who carry on the wonder of creation for us. Help us understand it better. Accountants who help us organize and make, make sense of what we have. Doctors who diagnose the diseases of our bodies. Lawyers who make, help make sense of the laws. Governments who help give structure to all of creation so we can enjoy it. It's all there in the purpose of our lives, of, of, of our work. It's no surprise that in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit gives us two categories for gifts to use among the church. Service gifts and speaking gifts. Gardening gifts and naming gifts, right? All of these are contributing to the kingdom of God. Your work contributes to God's creation. And of all the blessings you will receive back from the Lord for working with a good attitude, maybe just knowing your work has good purpose is the best of all. Let's pray. Father, I know this morning there there are a number of things, Holy Spirit, that you could have impressed upon our hearts. So I want to pray for each person who's experienced this in in their workplace. For, For those of us who struggle with the person for whom we work, we have a hard time respecting them. We have a hard time even going in. It, It grinds on us daily to think of it. We struggle to serve a fool. Help us recall, Jesus, that you served us on the cross. On the cross, you served an enemy in us. May your sacrifice fuel us to change our approach every day and work respectfully, work with reverence, knowing that you have so loved us. You loved a fool first. For those of us who feel the, the pressure 
to please others with our work. Father, help us discover the freedom of aiming to please just one who has ultimately accepted us. God, we know that you see our work and that you are well pleased. And Father, for for those of us who don't see the value in our work, remind us of the good purpose in our work from the very origins of mankind when you created us. That That through Jesus, we have opportunity to contribute to something even beyond ourselves, even if, it, even if it's quiet, even if few people ever see it, that we are fulfilling your good purpose for us. Jesus, breathe life into our work. Free us to work for you and not to please man. Free us to make that our aim every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.